Yes, so if you're not ready for Christmas yet, I bet you are now. I appreciate the worship team for leading us in worship today. Thank you, Lily, for reminding us. Yeah. From the mouths of child, children, right? Thank you for reminding us this is the greatest story that's ever told. You guys, we're sitting on the best story. The story that it was all built on, actually. God's story. The greatest story ever told today, we launch a four-part sermon series that actually ends on Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve, the 24th of December. We're going to do two services, both 4 o'clock and 6 o'clock p.m. Gear up now, get ready, be thinking about who you can invest in, who you can invite to come with you to join us. We're going to celebrate the hero of the story that night. It's going to take us four weeks to get there. And so I hope you don't miss a week in this series. Uh, it's the greatest story ever told. Mommy, Daddy, tell me a story. What parent what grandparent, what uncle, what aunt, when they hear that phrase, isn't reminded. I can even hear my kids' voices. Daddy, tell me a story. God's been telling a story since the dawn of time, and today we lean into the epicenter. I don't know if you have made holiday plans yet. I'm sure that many of us have. Maybe you're looking for something to fill one of your evenings over the next week or two. Friday night, uh, I took three of my kids. We gave mom a break for the night, and three of my kids and I went to the movie theater. I don't know if you've seen it yet. Christmas with the Chosen. Are any of you guys watching that series, The Chosen? I've heard many of you. It's really good. If you haven't checked that out yet, check it out. There's one of these, it's called The Messengers, and it was like, like part uh, special music, part like spoken word on location for, of the set of The Chosen, but it was also kind of a dramatic retelling of the greatest story ever told, the nativity scene. Oh my goodness, that geared me up for Christmas. I'm ready for this this year. We're looking at the power of story. A story has five basic but very important elements. These five components are the characters, the setting, the plot, the conflict, and then the resolution. These essential elements keep the story going. It keeps the listener or the watcher engaged. This is what we're doing for the next four weeks. We're looking at villains. We're looking at settings. We're looking at plot lines. Spoiler alert, this series concludes, I said, on Christmas Eve. Here's the spoiler alert. This story has a hero. He's the archetype of all heroes. All heroes, every other story has to measure up to him. There's only one hero in the Bible, by the way. Only one capital H hero, this is God himself, and this time of year we celebrate how he became incarnate. God became flesh. We call him Emmanuel because he made his dwelling among us. It's the greatest story ever told. I leaned in this last week. I did a little bit of research about uh, heroes. I looked at uh, a list that I found uh, that was published for the first 100 years of cinema. So many of us, we interact with stories through the power of cinema. And so in 2003, they looked at the, all the stories that have been told through movies since we had movies, the first 100 years of cinema. And I grabbed the list of like the top 50 heroes. And I want to share just a few of these with you. Number 50 actually caught my attention. This is Russell Crowe. He's uh, General Maximus Decimus Meridius, this is the hero in the movie Gladiator. 
I love that movie. The hero in that story captures my attention. Uh, Number 46 on that list is Michael Keaton, in my opinion, the best Batman. This one was filmed in 1989. He was number 46 on that list. Number 10, let me give you the top 10 real quick. Lawrence of Arabia. Some of you remember that movie. T.E. Lawrence, who's the hero of that story. Peter O'Toole is the actor. Number nine, how many of you, part of your Christmas tradition is to watch us? Uh, it's a Wonderful Life. How many of you will do that at some point during this season? Yep. Number nine, hero of all time list here on the top uh, 50, first 100 years of cinema, Jimmy Stewart as George Bailey. That's a pretty good hero, an unlikely hero, right? Number eight is Ellen Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver in the movie Aliens. Number seven, Rocky Balboa. That's a good one, right? An unlikely hero, short guy, punching everybody, punching up. Number six, Clarice Starling. This is a psychological thriller, The Silence of the Lambs. This was Jodie Foster's big breakout role. Number five, I don't know this movie well, some of you do. It's an old western called High Noon, Marshall Will Kane, played by Gary Cooper. Number five on the all-time hero list. Number four, Casablanca. How many of you are fans of Casablanca? This film, this blew me away. It was, it was filmed in 1942. Humphrey Bogart played Rick Blaine. This is the hero of that story. And for my money, number three is the best James Bond. I'll fight you on this. Sean Connery, number three, uh, that James Bond hero. Number two, Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones, I'll never forget as a kid going to, uh, we went to Universal Studios and we went to Disney on one trip with my parents, with my family. And I remember going to Universal Studios to the Indiana Jones Stunt Spectacular. And I watched this hero of my childhood in like living color in three dimensions. Number one. Number one hero, first 100 years of movie, of cinema, is from To Kill a Mockingbird. Gregory Peck is the actor. Atticus Finch. Isn't that interesting? Number one hero. Here's the thing. We're talking about heroes later in this series. We're talking about the hero. Today, the title of the message is actually the opposite. Not the protagonist, but the antagonist. This is the villain. If you have your Bible with you today, open it up to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read this story together here in just a minute. And we're going to look at the villain. And we're going to see if we can draw some application from the villain in this story. And maybe the villains in our lives by extension. Here's the thing. We're going to examine this over the next several weeks together. God has been telling a story since the dawn of time. God's story. We open up our Bible at the beginning, and it begins in a garden. The end of the story ends with a great city. But God's been telling a story. And where our place is, where we fit into that story, this is what we're leaning into. So for the rest of our time today, I want to share with you a statement. Here's the outline. A statement, then I'm going to share with you two cautions, and then I'm going to end with a challenge. A statement. Two cautions and a challenge. Let's start first with the statement. If you've got, uh, if you're taking notes today, write this down. Every good story has a villain. Think about it. 101 Dalmatians needs a Cruella de Vil, right? 
Every good story has a villain, and we root against them. It's kind of a part of what pulls us through a good story. So that same list I shared with you, the top 50 uh, heroes, there's also a similar list by the same group, the top. Uh, I'm going to share with you 10 villains. I'm going to blow through these pretty quick. Number 10 is actually the evil queen from Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Interesting, right? Number nine, Regan McNeil from the movie The Exorcist. Scary movie. Number eight, Phyllis Dietrichson. This is the uh, villain in the movie Double Indemnity. I don't know that film. Some of you might. Fatal Attraction has a villain, Alex Forrest. It's a Wonderful Life made it to this list as well. The villain in that story is a bit of an unlikely villain as well, Mr. Potter. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. The villain is Nurse Ratchet. Number four, uh, the Wizard of Oz needs a villain. It's the Wicked Witch of the West, right? Number three, you've got the Empire Strikes Back. Who's the villain in that? Well, Darth Vader, of course. Number two, the movie Psycho has a villain. His name is Norman Bates. Number one, again, the Silence of the Lamb made this list. Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Doesn't that psychological thriller just make your skin crawl? And that image, oh my goodness, that's a super villain. I know, Christmas is shopping. It's joy. It's sitting on Santa's lap. But the Christmas story actually has a villain. And as far as stories go, he's a pretty good one. If you've got your Bibles, I said open to Matthew chapter 2. Let's read that story together. We're beginning with verse 1. Let's take that off the screen. Let's put the text up here. Mommy and Daddy, tell me a story. This Christmas season, lean into this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, every good story has a setting. Here's the setting for our story. During the time of King Herod, it even sets it in its timeline. We're able to pinpoint exactly when this story took place. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. How far east? I wish I knew. This is something we really don't know. We know that the wise men or the magi, they came from the east. This might have been just across the Transjordan Valley. It might have been from Eden. It might have been a little bit further east. They might have come from like the cradle of civilization, ancient Mesopotamia, the old Babylonian Persian Empire era. It might be they traveled from the east from there. It might be, we don't know, they might have been even from the Orient, from the far east. We just don't know, but we do know that they came from the east plot starts to develop. The characters start to emerge. Who doesn't love a good story? The Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Every good movie has a score, right? The music swells at some points. The music goes down at some points. It's designed to make you lean in a little closer at some points. The drum beat kicks in. This is a moment the original audience heard the music swell. Wait a minute. The king of the Jews, we already have a king. Actually, we've got a bunch of kings. There's a hierarchy of kings around here. One of them happens to be profoundly jealous. He's wired that way. He's a master politician. He's not going to like this. The music swells. They keep talking. We saw his star in the east. Again, we don't know how far east. And we've come to worship him, this idea of worship. We hear it through 21st century lens, and we know the end of the story. If you're at all familiar with the Christmas story, you know who we're talking about here. It doesn't seem odd to talk about worshiping him, but I wonder, was it odd at that day to worship? 
person, a baby. Yes and no. Well, here's why no. If you were to take the Holy Land and make a map out of your hand, you've got Jerusalem right here. You go down a little bit further, and you're looking at Bethlehem here. You go up beyond that, uh, way up here is you've got the Sea of Galilee. Go above that, you've got a spot called Caesarea Philippi. And uh, Caesarea Philippi, this is a location where actually there is a, well, this is where Jesus looked at Peter and said, on this rock I build my church. The very gates of Hades won't prevail against her. There was a space right there where you could worship a living person. Emperor worship was taking place right there in that city. So this wouldn't have been completely out of context to worship a person, but I think this is going to make Herod jealous. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him, he was a master politician, they all kind of leaned on the whim of his emotions. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. This has been foretold. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied... For this is what the prophet, what prophet, Micah, actually in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, you can read this, has written, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be a shepherd of my people Israel. This is an ancient story. And what we're getting ready to lean into, it has been foretold. It has been promised and all creation groans and awaits the arrival of this king. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. I wish we knew that. So we could triangulate. We could figure out by travel customs and times of the day how far east they had traveled from. But we don't know that. The text doesn't tell us that. He called the Magi and they found out the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me. I want to hear what's going on so I too may go and worship him. Is he telling the truth? Or is he lying? After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. This story has intrigue. It pulls you in. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary. We're going to talk about her in one of the weeks coming up. And they bowed down, and they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures. All of our kids rejoice on this verse. This is the beginning of the tradition, why my kids and maybe yours get to open Christmas presents on Christmas morning. This is where it starts. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. I love that God is speaking intrigue even through dreams here, right? Well, why were they warned not to go back to Herod? Well, he was the villain, right? The text continues. More is revealed. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Again, intrigue, even through dreams. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Now, at this point in the story, the original audience would have said, wait, Egypt, that's a plot twist. We don't escape to Egypt, we escape from Egypt, right? I mean, the last time we tried to escape to Egypt, it ended up in 400 years of bondage and slavery, and then we had to escape from Egypt. Why is the hero going to Egypt? Well, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt, stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. 
By the way, this satisfies another ancient prophecy. So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said. And he said this in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. What did he say? Through the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem. The music swells. And in its vicinity, and that word right there, in its vicinity, this fulfills another prophecy. These boys who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said to the prophet Jeremiah, this is in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15, was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Her, her grave is actually not too far from Bethlehem. This sound, I'm sure, of moms wailing over the death of their children, this fulfills that ancient prophecy as well. Man, there's a whole lot going on here. Quoting the Old Testament, ancient prophecies coming true. We need to do a quick character study, if we can, of our villain, King Herod. Herod the Great. By the way, he's one of, get this, six Herods to be found in your New Testament scriptures. If you're reading through the New Testament, actually it becomes confusing at times. Here's a list of some of the Herods. You've got Herod the Great. You've got Herod Archelaus. You've got Herod Antipas. You've got Philip the Tetrarch. He's also known as Herod Philip II. You've got Herod II. You've got Herod Agrippa. You've got Herod of Calchas. You've got Herod Agrippa II. And it's confusing. Let me just say this. If you're reading through scripture... And you see the word Herod or King Herod, it's okay to scowl just a little bit. You're reading about a villain. King Herod the Great, the villain in this story, he was born around 72 B.C. His dad, oh, he was the second son, actually. His dad, uh, his name was Antipater, and he was a high-ranking official in Idumenia. And uh, his mom, her name was uh, Cyprus. She was a Nabataean Arab princess. She was from the city of Petra. Remember the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark where they find the Holy Grail, this beautiful city carved out of ancient rock? That was his mom's hometown. Isn't that a cool detail? That's now in Jordan. When Herod died, the Romans divided his kingdom between a whole bunch of people, his kids and his daughter, or actually, actually his sister had some of it. There was political chaos. Jesus was born into this chaos, and this resulted in so many Herods. Some of those Herods, they did some awful things in the rest of Scripture. You've got uh, Herod Antipas. He orders the death of John the Baptist, and he's the one that mocked Jesus. You've got Herod Agrippa, too. This is the King Agrippa that the Apostle Paul had to defend himself against uh, and to in the book of Acts. But our Herod today, Herod the Great, he's a supervillain. He's a supervillain. He's Lex Luthor, think Superman. He's Magneto, think the X-Men. He's the Joker, think Batman all combined. He was a complex character. He was both loved and he was hated. Why was he loved? Well, he was an amazing builder. He did some amazing public works in his day. He built a series of pleasure palaces. One of them is called the Herodium. I've got some pictures here of it. I snapped these photos years ago. You can stand on top of the Herodium and you can look this way and see Bethlehem. You can look this way and you can see Jerusalem. It was an amazing accomplishment, the Herodium. 
He also built a place called Masada. This is another pleasure palace. It was a space that he could retreat to. Here's a picture of Masada. The word Masada, this is the Hebrew word you would read in Psalm 18 when it says, the Lord is my rock, the Lord is my fortress. That's Masada. And he built this place to retreat to. If you ever, the politics got a little bit too crazy, he could retreat there. And he could make a stand there. He could defend himself with an army from there. Actually, when Jerusalem falls in A.D. 70, this is exactly where the rebels retreated to. And they hold up there, and the armies of Rome surrounded them, and it took quite a while to root them out. It actually ended with a mass suicide. These rebels, 960 of them, killed themselves. It's told to be today that secret police... The Masad, they still do some of their induction ceremonies at Masada. King Herod built that. He built a place called the Cave of the Patriarchs. This is one of the only surviving intact structures that he built. And if you were to study that and look at it, you would see he was a master builder. He was a master architect. He's kind of a supervillain. Caesarea Maritima, Rome did not have a deep harbor to bring supplies to the Holy Land. So what did Herod do? He built the will, bent the will of nature to himself and he built a harbor, Caesarea Maritima. Actually, first century technology, they poured underwater cement, and much of that structure survives even to this day. Actually, Jesus couldn't walk around Jerusalem without being reminded of Herod. His fingerprints were everywhere. When he healed the blind man, the pool of Siloam, I've got a photo of that. This is something archaeologists just uncovered just a few years ago. Oh, my goodness, Herod rebuilt that. Every time Jesus walked around Jerusalem, he had to be reminded of this villain. Herod built the Antonia Fortress the night that Jesus was betrayed. When the Roman soldiers came and arrested him in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Antonia Fortress, this is where they came from. Herod built, check this out, he built the temple. This is a model. But where the Jews came to worship, Herod's the one that built that. You talk about a supervillain. He was also a megalomaniac. There's a story that goes back to the first century that people would come over like dinner guests would come to the Herodium. And you could look down at the base of the Herodium. You saw it in the picture a bit ago. Here's a closer up version of it. This was like a pool that he built, a small lake, if you will. He would float model ships in there, and they would interact for his dinner guests, a dinner party, like a mock war, sinking ships firing at each other, a megalomaniac. And here's the deal. Remember our story has a hero? The hero confronts the villain. Jesus made subversive statements all the time in the New Testament. If you know what to look for, you can see him. I talked about Caesarea Philippi a bit ago. You're Peter, and on this rock I build my church, and the very gates of Hades will not prevail against her. They were standing in front of a location that the ancients literally called the gates of Hades, the entrance to the underworld. And Jesus was saying in that moment, listen, my church, here's the story. Our church, the church that Jesus built, that Jesus planted, that Jesus set into motion before he ascended into heaven. He said that church is supposed to stand up against the ideology of its day. The church is supposed to prevail throughout time. This is the story that he began. There's this story of Jesus you could find it in your New Testament. When he's walking uh, from Bethany across the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley, he did this every day the last week of his life. And then he would walk through the Golden Gate into the city of Jerusalem. 
And that first day he drove out some money changers in the temple. And he's thinking about this as he's walking in. And on Monday he looks at this fig tree that doesn't have any figs on it. And he curses the tree. He says, I wish you were never born. I wish I would never, I'm paraphrasing, created you. He curses it. They walk on into the city, do their thing. The next morning, Tuesday morning, they're walking in. The disciples see that this has been killed. I mean, what would normally take years for it to wither like this, it's, the text literally says, from its roots, it's withered. And they ask Jesus about it. Check this out in Mark chapter 11. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Well, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt... Well, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, you can say to this mountain, I think he pointed in the distance, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. I think at that point he's pointing at the Herodium. I showed you pictures of that a bit ago. You can see the Herodium. You can stand on top of the Herodium, actually, with a good pair of uh, vortex uh, glasses or, or, or binoculars. I've got a pair of those. I think from the top of there, I could look into Bethlehem. And from the top of the Herodium, I believe I could see the Mount of Olives. You can see it with your naked eye. And so the opposite is true. Standing on the Mount of Olives, you can look back and see the Herodium. And here's the thing. Here's another angle of the Herodium. This was a mountain. Herod, the great architect, the great builder, to build his pleasure palace on top of this, he wanted it higher. So they leveled the top of this mountain, and they built it up here. I think Jesus is making a powerful statement here. He's saying, listen, the ideologies of the day will not stand against my church. Have faith. Have mountain-moving kind of faith and just see. Just see what God can do in you and through you. Herod's dead. But what you can do, what God desires to do in you and through you is mountain-moving kind of faith. Uh, the ideologies of the world cannot stand against the church, the story that God is telling. Jesus, as an adult in this moment, he's stepping into his life's moment. He's stepping into his calling as an adult. He's commenting in that moment, I think, on the supervillain who tried to kill him as an infant. It's akin to Batman, recognizing that the Joker is the one that set into motion the actions to kill Batman's parents, and he learns that as an adult. I think in this moment, Jesus says, this is the man that tried to kill me. But he's speaking to his followers, and he's saying, he's dead. Herod is long dead and gone. But the kingdom that I'm, I'm establishing through you it endures. Have mountain-moving kind of faith. Remember I said there's going to be a statement. We just said that every good story has a villain. I said there'd be two cautions, and then I said I want to leave you with a challenge. Here's the first of the two cautions. At first glance, the villain seems obvious, right? At first glance, well, it's obvious who the villain is. It's Herod, right? Here's the definition of antagonist. In literature, an antagonist is a character or a group of characters which stands in opposition to the protagonist. That sure seems like Herod, which is the main character. It is common to refer to antagonist as a villain, the bad guy, against whom a hero, the good guy, fights in order to save himself or others. Well, of course we're talking about Herod, right? 
And in your life, when you think about the villains in your life, well, of course, it's your boss, right? It's that neighbor that you can't stand, right? It's that person on Twitter that just drives you crazy because they're constantly posting things that are different than your ideology, that are outside of your own echo chamber. You view them as the villain in your life, right? Well, maybe. Probably not. There's an archetype of a villain. You could look up this definition for yourself. Before we do that, though, I want to point out, let's go back. We talked about God's story. We talk about your story. This space where the two interact, the story that God wants to tell through your life, is meant to merge with the story that he's been telling since the dawn of time. And this space right here where the two interact, this is the sweet spot where your story, that you have a testimony what God has done for you, when you tell God's story through the lens of how he's impacted, this is the sweet spot of evangelism. We're going to talk about that more in the weeks and the months ahead. Let's talk about where villains really come from. There's an archetype of a villain that goes back. It's a part of a much more ancient story. And I would submit to you that Herod the Great is not the true villain of this story. He's borrowing from a much older tradition of supervillains, Singular, actually. One villain. God's story is an ancient story. Remember, there is an archetype of a villain. We have to go further back in God's story, further back before King David, further back before the prophets. We've got to go all the way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 3. The Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? She sinned, right? This story has intrigue. This story has drama. The woman... Eve, our spiritual mother, said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And then the text continues, so the Lord said to the serpent, by the way, the serpent, the beginning of the story, he's called the serpent. At the end of the story in the book of Revelation, he's referred to as the dragon, but he's cast down. He's cast out. We've read the end of the story. God wins. Here's the beginning of the story. Because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you're going to eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. The hero of our story, Jesus the baby in the manger who grows up to be the savior of the world. He dies on the cross, and in that moment, he crushes the head of the serpent. But here's the deal. You're just going to be striking at his heel. This serpent, you're just kind of a nuisance. You're annoying. You're there. You're bothering. This is the archetype of the villain. Jesus recognized, and I would caution you, me, remember I said there'd be a statement, there'd be two cautions, and there would be a challenge. Here's the second caution. Fight the real villain in your story. We get so caught up in, well, so-and-so, and so-and-so, and and this person, and that person. Fight the real villain in your story. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says, For we wrestle, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. Where? In the heavenly realms. The good news is, look closely, the good news is that you have the power to choose what you wrestle with. 
our enemy wants to divert our focus from the unseen wrestling match. He wants to divert our attention to the squabbles on Twitter, the squabbles on Facebook, those petty arguments maybe that you feel drawn into in your world around you. Our enemy wants to divert our focus from the unseen wrestling match so that we're distracted and controlled by a shadowed expression of evil. He doesn't want us to strike at the source that's actually casting the shadow. So let me ask you today. Let me ask you, what seen thing is distracting you from the real battle? What seen thing, what thing that you are just hyper-focused in your life on right now? What's distracting you from the real spiritual battle? Because there is a villain, an archetype of villain. King Herod wasn't really the villain. Satan was the villain. And Jesus kept his eyes on the gold. He didn't get distracted by the temporary things, by the little villains in his life. Attempting to defeat the enemy by wrestling with people could be likened to trying to destroy a tree by picking all of its fruit. Remember Jesus, the fig tree? I'm just going to take this fruit, or I'm going to strip this tree of its leaves. Well, that's just petty. It doesn't kill the tree. To kill a tree, you must destroy the root system. C.S. Lewis said it this way, there's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. There's an entire underground system of darkness in place which often operates or gains expression through the lives of people. People have not targeted you, even though at times it may feel that way. Something far more cunning and ancient has you in its sights because the serpent or in the book of Revelation, he's described as the dragon. He's afraid of what you carry. If you know Jesus, you carry him with you. So do you feel distracted today? Do you feel like the little v villains in your life are striking at your heel? Winston Churchill said this during the heart of World War II. Some of you think this comes from a, a country song. If you are going through hell, keep going. Are you feeling that way right now? Do you feel like some of the villains in your life are just, just nipping at your heel? I don't know what you're facing today. Honestly, if I can just be super blunt with you, this has been a difficult week for your pastor. It's been a hard week. I don't know about you, but I bet some of you, this time of year especially, I know that the Christmas season, if you've lost a loved one this past year, I bet, I bet you're wrestling with some stuff right now. This is a time, it just feels like everybody's just a little bit angsty and everybody's bickering and everybody's fighting a little bit. Here's the deal, the adversity of the week. The micro-villains in my story and the micro-villains in your story, listen, they're not our enemy. So before you go swinging a sword, make sure you're fighting the real fight. Can I challenge you? Can I challenge you with a worthy fight? Remember I said there's a statement, there's two cautions, and there's a challenge. Here it is. We're going to unpack this more in weeks ahead, but God's been telling a story since the dawn of time. You have a story. You have a testimony of how God has changed your life. You have people in your life, they also have a story. Some of those people, might I suggest to you, you might even view them right now through a lens of maybe they're a villain. Maybe there's somebody that's nipping at your heel. They don't live in your echo chamber. 
They see the world a little bit differently than the way you see the world. But here's the deal. Part of God's story, not only does he want to redeem you, (laughs) maybe he even wants to redeem the villains, so-called, in your life as well. The overlap there is pretty important. Here's the challenge. Your story is yours. But if you're God's, and if you've asked Jesus to be Lord of your life, you are. You're his child. You've been redeemed. You've been adopted into his family. The Christmas story is so meaningful because it's the story of your redemption. And you know this. This is why I sat in the theater on Friday night and I watched that story and I felt tears on my face because ah, it's redeeming me. God's story is redeeming me. It's a powerful story. He's redeeming you. But if you're God's, your story is yours. But if you're God's, it's also their story. Who are those people in your life right now who desperately need to see Jesus? Here's our Venn diagram again. You've got God's story. You've got your story. You've got their story. The intersection of those This is where the power of the gospel can invade a human's life, invade a human heart. This Christmas season, can I challenge you to open your eyes to the cosmic story around you. Don't get distracted by the small V villains nipping at your heel. Keep your eyes open. There is an ancient villain. Keep your eyes open to the cosmic story. Would you stand up with us right now? We're going to worship And as we do, I'm going to invite you to internalize these lyrics. The song we're getting ready to sing, oh, it tells the Christmas story. And it bridges that story with the Easter story. This is the story of mankind's redemption. Redemption for you. Redemption for me. Ideally, redemption even for those little villains in your life as well. And there's a moment There's a moment in this song when we feel the weight. Jesus crushes the serpent's head. Can I invite you? Can I challenge you? Simply lean into that as a moment of worship.